Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Emil Torres, who is an expert on Tescreal. Thanks for joining us, Emil. Thanks so so much for having me. This is it's wonderful to be here. So I guess over the past few weeks we've been talking about artificial intelligence with people like Professor Emily Bender and Dan McQuillan, and one thing that has come up a few times and a little bit over the course of doing the show over the past few years is that there are a few people in Silicon Valley who have started believing some sort of strange things, and you, along with Dr. Timnit Gebru have identified these strange things as Tescreal. So we thought we should get you on the show and you could tell us what is Tescreal. So first of all, I mean, people in Silicon Valley have been believing strange things for a long time. But there is this bundle of ideologies that is right now very influential. And its its influence is kind of pervasive within Silicon Valley, big tech, maybe the tech world more generally. And so basically, Timmy Gebru and I were working on this article and tracing the the prominence of some of these ideologies within Silicon Valley. And we found it to be, we, we found that discussing some of the major players was completely unmanageable because we would say things like Nick Bostrom, a transhumanist who per- participated in the extropy movement, who is hugely influential among rationalists, has direct ties to cosmism. And is a major player with an effective altruism and also co-founded this other ideology called long-termism. That was just too, <laughs> that was outrageous to keep writing stuff like that. So I proposed this acronym to capture a, a cluster of interrelated overlapping ideologies that are, are historically linked to each other. So they have sort of this common genealogy, really going back to 20th century eugenics and and the communities of each of these ideologies overlapped significantly and so on. So basically what the acronym, so the acronym was proposed to economize speech, to streamline things, make the paper manageable. And it's turned out to be just a really useful conceptual framework for understanding what's going on, what is driving the current race to create artificial general intelligence or AGI. And so the, the acronym stands for a, f- a few large polysyllabic words that I just mentioned, transhumanism, extropianism, singularitarianism, cosmism, rationalism, effective altruism, and finally, long-termism. And so the, the backbone of this acronym is transhumanism. 
And if that's the case, you could sort of think of long-termism as the galaxy brain that sits atop because it binds together all sorts of major themes and ideas and elements of the other ideologies into a comprehensive, cohesive worldview or what what I would call a normative futurology, a, a set of claims about what the future ought to look like. And so, yeah, I mean, transhumanism is basically this idea that we should use emerging technologies, increasingly powerful technologies, nanotechnology, synthetic biology, genetic engineering, AI, to radically re-engineer the human organism, ultimately to create a superior new race of post-humans. So these beings might be immortal, they might have superhuman levels of intelligence, perfect control over their rationality, maybe they're superhumanly moral in, in some sense, <laughs> which it's a very, very controversial idea. But yeah, so that is the, this transhumanist ideology is just everywhere in Silicon Valley. So Elon Musk's company Neuralink is about ultimately merging the human brain with AI. That is a transhumanist goal. People like Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, he donated $180 million to a company called Retro Biosciences, which aims to extend the human lifespan at least 10 years and beyond that, hopefully we can live indefinitely. And Altman also is one of, I think it was maybe 20 people, I can't remember the exact number, who back in 2018 signed up with another startup called Nectome to have his brain preserved after he dies uh, so that it can ultimately be uploaded to the cloud. And if that's the case, then he would basically re-wake up again as a conscious entity, but rather than existing on a biological substrate, he would exist on this on computer hardware and ultimately would then be able to attain a kind of digital immortality. So transhumanism is everywhere and that is the backbone of the test rule bundle. It's hard to know where to go from there because it is sure. sort of absurd. I, I guess let's let's get through the acronym. So those the first few letters are all essentially brands of uh, transhumanism. You're up until about cosmism. And then we get into effective altruism, which has been a big buzzword in the valley and thereabouts and seems on the surface to be quite admirable. Could you tell us what is effective altruism? Yeah, sure. So, I, I mean, and just to, to underline, you're totally right that basically the next, let's see, three letters in the acronym, really it's extropianism, singularitarianism, and cosmism. Those are just kind of variants of transhumanism. Their, their emphasis is different and their scope might be different, but they're basically just versions of transhumanism. And then you get to rationalism, which is basically this idea that, okay, if we're, if we're going to create this techno-utopian post-human future where we spread into space and maximize value and become these immortal digital beings, then that's going to require a lot of really smart people doing really smart things. So let's figure out how to optimize our smartness. In other words, optimize our rationality. And effective altruism is, as actually one effective altruist put it to me many years ago, it's basically what you get when rationalists pivot from focusing just on optimizing their rationality to pivot to, to thinking about how they might optimize their morality. So what are the best ways to do the most good in the world? First of all, there's a question like, what is good? What is the good? What, what does it mean for something to be valuable? And then is it quantifiable? Because if it's not quantifiable, then it's not exactly clear how it can be maximized. But at first glance, effective altruism sounds pretty appealing, right? It's just like, I, I want to be an altruist. 
but not somebody who's just like wasting my money, wasting my charitable donations on causes or on you know, particular charities that just aren't very good at improving the world. And so it sounds good first glance, but when you lift the hood, peek underneath and see exactly what they mean by maximizing the good, then it ends up being kind of problematic. So Sam Bankman-Fried, for example, is a leading effective altruist, probably one of the most prominent EAs uh, or effective altruists in the world. And the whole reason he went into crypto was because of an idea that was developed by effective altruists called earn to give. And the claim was that, okay, we live in this system, which is very hard to change. Effective altruists are sort of notorious for not taking seriously the possibility of systemic change. So we live in this kind of neoliberal capitalist uh, system existing within it. How can I do the most good? How can I save the most lives? Well, maybe I can go work for like a nonprofit, a charity that focuses on animal welfare or mitigating climate change. Alternatively, what maybe perhaps the best thing to do is to go work on Wall Street to pursue some kind of lucrative job, even if it means working for a quote unquote immoral organization to quote one of the co-founders of EA, William McCaskill, because by earning more money, then I am better positioned to take that money and donate to charity. So maybe I go work for a nonprofit or alternatively, I go work for Wall Street, make a huge amount of money, donate it to that nonprofit that I was going to work for. And rather than it being the case that that charity just hires one person, maybe they could take that money and hire like 15 people. So, so perhaps that's the best way to do the most good. And Sam Bankman-Fried in 2013, he had a sat down for lunch with Will McCaskill and he said, I think I'm going to go work for, I think it was like an animal welfare a charity. And McCaskill convinced him to pursue this earn to give career approach. So he went to work for Jane Street Capital, where a bunch of other effective altruists have worked, like Matthew Wage, for example. And then after several years of that, he decided maybe there's a better option here. Maybe I should pursue crypto. As one journalist put it, the, the goal was to, quote unquote, get filthy rich for charity's sake. So Bankman-Fried went into crypto. He got lucky. He won the lottery, <laughs> made billions and billions of dollars. And ultimately, it turns out that part of his pursuit this, this sort of will to a certain kind of power led him to cut corners. Yeah, it's been alleged that he made his own luck, rather, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I think anybody who gets very successful, there, there's there's a huge luck factor. So that, that's all I meant by by that. But yeah, I mean, he he clearly worked hard, but he also ended up cutting a lot of corners. And now he's been charged with multiple felonies. I think he faces 150 years or something in prison. So this, so once you zoom in on like the details of effective altruism, it turns out that I think the movement is super problematic in many ways. And Earn to Give is just one of multiple examples that I could mention. Emil, it seems that accumulating enormous amounts of wealth is necessary in order to do great good, mm-hmm. according to this account. Is there a reason why the financial has triumphed over the political? Because another way of exercising or doing good is through exercising state power. And yet um, it seems politics is kind of like a um, side project for many of those involved in this movement. Yeah, great question. So I wouldn't say, I would agree that politics was a side project for a while. That's 
less the case these days. But also, I think it's worth distinguishing between politics as a means for realizing the effective altruist aims. And so on the one side, and on the other side, pursuing uh, pursuing activities that might bring about systemic changes. So politics, it, it's still... You, you can try to, to gain a lot of political power to change the world certain ways while still working within systems that are perhaps the cause of a lot of the world's problems in the first place. And so basically over the past few years, you do see some effective altruists who have become increasingly interested in getting involved in politics. So Toby Ord at the Future of Humanity Institute has been, who's a co-founder of Effective Altruism along with Will McCaskill, he has been a consultant for a number of UK government reports, as well as a United Nations uh, official report that mentioned this notion of existential risk, which is uh, very central to the long-termist uh, worldview, which we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll get to in a moment. And also, it was last year, I believe it was last year, that there was an effective altruist named uh, Carrick Flynn, who ran for a congressional seat based in Oregon. And yeah, his goal, he, he got a huge amount of money, mostly from Sam Bankman-Fried. I believe it was a record-breaking amount of campaign donations, ultimately lost by quite a bit. But so he's another example. And then there are some of the, or, the main like effective altruist slash long-termist organizations also are explicitly focused on trying to influence politics. So there's one based in Washington, D.C., and the acronym is CSET, and I'm forgetting exactly what it stands for, Center for Security and Emerging Technology, something like that. And they, the, the open secret is that their goal is to take effective altruists and long-termists and place them in high-level government positions, ultimately to influence the political systems in the U.S. from the inside out. So, yeah, I mean, politics is one way of trying to exercise power and ultimately to realize the p particular aims of effective altruism and long-termism. I suppose we better get to long-termism at some point, as it were. Could you tell us what is long-termism? Yeah, sure. So long-termism is this idea that maybe the best way to do the most good is to focus on the very far future of humanity. And... So I think one way of understanding how long-termism emerged, how it was developed throughout the, the 2010s, beginning like, I don't know, really right around 2009, 2010, is that you have these people, effective altruists, who are committed to maximizing the positive influence of their actions. And then they discovered the work of Nick Bostrom and some others who pointed out that if you listen to contemporary cosmologists, they will tell you that the future of the universe during which conditions will be sufficiently habitable for human life or our digital successors to exist, that, that amount of time is enormous. So Homo sapiens has existed on Earth so far for about 300,000 years. And the, the Homo genus for about 2.6 million. But compare that to the amount of time we could exist in the future. So Earth itself will remain livable for another billion years or so. But if we spread beyond Earth, then 
we could exist for, I don't know, something like 10 to the 40 years at least. So that's a one followed by 40 zeros. It's just an unfathomable, huge amount of time. And so consequently, if we then spread into space, the future human population could be massive. I believe it was Carl Sagan, the, the cosmologist the ho- who was famous in part for hosting the uh, 1980s you know, series of uh, Cosmos. He was probably the first one to estimate how many future humans there could be. And he said, okay, if we just remain on Earth, so we don't leave this little planetary island that we're on, and we exist for another 10 million years, the future number of people could be 500 trillion. So that is an enormous number. (laughs) There have been an estimated 117 billion human beings so far in history. Compare that to 500 trillion just over the next 10 million years. Then if we spread into space and exist for trillions and trillions of years beyond the present, that number could be just orders of magnitude larger. And so the reasoning goes, okay, if I want to positively influence the greatest number of people, and if the future human population is going to be much, much bigger than the present human population, then maybe what I should do is focus on them rather than current day people. And so that's, this is how the long-termist ideology emerged. It's sort of this, this collision of like insights from cosmology paired with this, this moral imperative to maximize one's positive influence in the world. Put those together, you get long-termism. I mean, <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but it's pretty stupid. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be some of the math doesn't quite hold up for me just in terms of the impending climate crisis. But that's one of the things, right? If we're going to worry about people a trillion years in the future, we don't need to be really worrying about the next 50 years. That's exactly right. I mean, this this is one of the problems, in my view, with the, the long-termist worldview is by focusing on the potential bigness of the future, just about every contemporary problem fades into almost nothingness. <laughs> it fades into just insignificance. Um, really, this is where the idea of existential risk uh, comes into the picture in a very significant way, because an existential risk is basically defined as any event that would prevent us from realizing this kind of techno-utopian post-human future among the stars, full of astronomical amounts of value by virtue of being full of astronomical numbers of people. And so any, so an existential risk is anything that prevents us from creating that future. And consequently, if there's a, a contemporary problem or challenge, disaster, and so on, that is deemed to be non-existential, it's going to be much lower on our priority a priority list <laughs> because okay, imagine a, a catastrophe that, that kills a, a billion people today. Like that is in absolute terms, very, very bad. Now imagine a, a scenario that would decrease the probability of there existing some enormous amount of people in the future. Well, if you crunch the numbers, the priority should always be on that existential risk that is reducing the likelihood of realizing all of this value in the future. It, the existential risk win every time. Now, yeah. nobody, who's, nobody who's wondering where the next rent check is coming from is uh, subscribing to this theory, I've noticed. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that's worth mentioning as well is that all of these future people, they, by virtue of being future people, they don't exist yet. So there's a sense in which they are merely hypothetical. And I feel like this is where there's a bit of sleight of hand that the long-termists engage in when making the case for their particular view. Because they'll say, okay, future people matter. That sounds right. And and in a sense, I very much agree with that. There, there are people who, who haven't been born yet, but almost certainly will be born later this century, who are going to suffer the horrendous, unthinkable consequences of catastrophic climate change by no fault of their own. Should we care about them? Yes, absolutely. But the long-termists go just way beyond this. And they imagine these digital people living in vast computer simulations spread throughout the universe. And on their view, the ultimate goal of, or at least one of the main ultimate goals of morality is to maximize value. And you could understand value as something like happiness. So just the more happiness that exists in the universe as a whole from our present moment until the universe itself becomes uninhabitable. The more total happiness there is, the better the universe is in just some kind of weird impersonal sense. The universe is just better with more happiness in it. So one way to, to create more happiness is like to focus on the people who currently exist or almost certainly will exist in the near future and try to make them happier. And so, okay, that, that doesn't sound so extreme, but another way to, cr- to create more happiness is just to create more people. If those people are going to have net positive amounts of value or happiness, then in order to maximize the total amount of happiness in the universe, you create them. And so it's this sort of reasoning, it, this view that people are basically just the containers of value. And that is why we matter. And so on the one hand, you could just try to to fill up the containers that currently exist with more value. On the other hand, you just create more containers. And if they have a net positive amount of value in them, then you've, you've, you're on your, your way to maximizing the total amount of value in the universe. And so it's this very weird understanding, very weird conception of the value of people, of you and me. We are just the vessels <laughs> for value. And so this, this is why they're obsessed with calculating how many future people there could be. So maybe there could, there could be, these are actual numbers from them, like 10 to the 23. So one followed by 23 zeros, biological humans within just our cluster of cluster, a cluster of cluster of galaxies. So called the Virgo super, super cluster. So 10 to the 23 biological humans. Well, maybe we could also become digital. Then there could be even more people because you could just cram them into these vast computer simulations running on literally planet sized computers. And then the number increases to like 10 to the 38. Or another estimate is 10 to the 58, which is much, much, much bigger. And so this is why they're obsessed with calculating how many future people, including digital people, there could be. Because the more people that exist in the future, the better the universe becomes as a whole. And the implication of that is that we have a moral duty to ensure that these people come into existence in the first place. And that's why they end up with this view that Anything, any kind of challenge or risk or catastrophe that is non-existential just isn't a big deal in this grand scheme of things. Because by definition, a non-existential risk does not threaten the creation of all of these future people. Does that make sense? 
Well, well I hope that's clear. <laughs> your explanation makes sense. If yeah. you're just tuning in, we're talking about what some of the richest people in the world believe. Emil, <laughs> AI comes into this pretty heavily. There's artificial intelligence, and then there's something called artificial general intelligence. There seems to be, at the same time, and this is where it gets a little complicated, at the same time there is this rush to create artificial general intelligence or AGI, this an artificial intelligence that is truly intelligent. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, from the same people, there's this fear of artificial general intelligence. Could you perhaps explain to our listeners this contradiction and wh- where they're going with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, gr- great question. So it does look like there is a contradiction at first because there are people in this kind of test group community who are really excited about AGI, artificial general intelligence, and want to build it as soon as possible. And then there are also leading figures who are freaking out and super anxious that we're rapidly approaching the moment when we create AGI and that when we do that, literally everybody on earth is going to die. So that'll be an existential catastrophe. By virtue of killing everybody on earth, the AGI will simultaneously erase all of this future value that could exist. And that is what would be most <laughs> devastating about this, this scenario. And so, but, but there, there really isn't a contradiction because going back to the early 1960s, when people first started to seriously discuss the possibility of AGI or superintelligence or what some called ultra-intelligent machines, so computers, machines, and so on, that are as or more intelligent than human beings. Whatever intelligence means exactly. That's a whole other uh, question. But so from the, the origins of discussing this topic, people recognize that there are there are basically two probable outcomes of creating AGI. One is that it'll usher in utopia and enable us to colonize space and to become these immortal post-humans, maybe upload our minds to computers. That's one possibility. On the other hand, maybe it just completely annihilates us. So the, the part, and part of the thinking is that like, in, maybe it's necessary for us to get from where we are right now to where we want to be. That is to say, from our current moment of just human mediocrity to this techno-utopian world of superabundance and space colonization and immortality. Maybe we need to create AGI. Maybe there's no other route to utopia than creating AGI. But the catch is that AGI will introduce unprecedented risk to our survival. So it's a catch-22. We need to create AGI, but doing so means that we're going to have to walk across this field that is completely full of landmines. And so this is how the whole subfield of AI safety emerged. Because people thought, okay, well, we don't want to just say, let's never create AGI. That itself might be an existential catastrophe because maybe we never realized a utopia then. But because AGI is so risky, we need this like field in which researchers are trying to answer the question, how do we build it in a safe manner? So... This, this, I hope that makes clear how it's not really a contradiction. There's a technology we need, but it's super dangerous. And, and then within the test group community these days, there are just differing opinions about the probability of doom. 
So on the one hand, you've got these like AI doomers, like Ilya Zaryavkowski, who used to be really excited about AGI. And they were transhumanist, extropians, singularitarians, and so on. You know, many letters within the test grill acronym, very excited about AGI and thought that, okay, once we create it, the almost certain outcome is going to be just utopia. And then over the past 20 years, they've come to this conclusion that actually building a safe AGI that doesn't just immediately annihilate us, that's going to be really difficult. And so therefore, maybe the only option is just to delay <laughs> the creation of AGI. So we've got a little bit more time to figure out how to build it in a safe manner. This is where, this is what's behind the demands for a ban or pause on the creation of, of AGI. And then you've got the accelerationists on the other side who basically adopt the exact same kind of vision, techno-utopian vision. This is what the future ought to look like. But they just disagree with the doomers about the probability of annihilation if we create AGI in the near future. And yeah, so you, you end up with these, these two camps that actually agree about a huge amount. They both accept the same techno-utopian vision of the future. They just are at odds when it comes to the likelihood of complete annihilation if AGI is built in the next decade. Much of this strikes me as almost forming a part of a form of uh, constituting itself as a form of science fiction. Mm -hmm. It involves vaulting ambition and projecting far into the future on the basis of fairly limited, I guess, information. But in terms of the kinds of sources or Tesquial, the, the, the ideas that inform it, um, are these drawn from literary sources, from philosophy? Can you talk a little bit about whatever ideological antecedents there have been for this cluster of doctrines? Yeah, great question. Uh, th there definitely are roots in the science fiction literature. So, for example, the idea of the singularity, one of the, the most the most influential papers that was published about the singularity was written by a guy named Werner Vinge. I think I'm saying his last name correctly, <laughs> Vinge or Vinge. And it was published in, I believe, 1993 on the singularity. So he was a science fiction writer. There are many other computer scientists like Hans Moravec and I, I think Marvin Minsky who have said that they've been influenced by science fiction. And Yes, yeah, so, so definitely there are some of these ideas were initially kind of developed by science fiction writers, in some cases within the science fiction literature. But I would also add that there are a number of leading figures in the test grill movement who admit to not being that familiar with science fiction. So they sort of absorbed ideas from, you know, Vinci in his, his 1993 paper on the singularity, which is supposed to be Nonfiction. It's supposed to be a sort of prediction about what's going to happen in the future. So Nick Bostrom's example, he, he has said he, he was never really influenced by uh, science fiction, but nonetheless has, has read the work of like Hans Moravec and others who were influenced by science fiction. So there is a lineage there that goes back to, to science fiction. And you're totally right that it, it's, it's, this vision of the future is highly speculative. It's, it, it anticipates all sorts of strange technologies that haven't yet been invented imagines us going out of colonizing space, which of course is a, has been a major theme of science fiction for a very long time. So yeah, interesting and, and interesting connections between science fiction and the, the test grill worldview.
when I think about the threat of artificial general intelligence, I think of things like Roko's Basilisk, which was another fad that sort of swept across some of these people earlier uh, in the piece. Could you tell us, is this something that these people still believe in? And what is it perhaps realistic? Yeah, yeah. So Roko's Basilisk, that, I mean, incidentally, that is how Grimes and Elon Musk met. If I remember correctly, she made a joke on social media about this idea and Musk took interest <laughs> and that's ultimately how they, they met. So this is a, a thought experiment that was initially posted on the Less Wrong website. And the Less Wrong website was founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky, who I mentioned earlier, who was a transhumanist, who participated in the extropy movement, is a singularitarian, founder of rationalism, hugely influential among EA, and is, is basically a advocate of the long-termist ideology. So another, a great example along with Bostrom and actually a whole bunch of others who have been, have played a significant role in many of the test grill letters. And so he founded this, this website called Less Wrong in 2009. It's, it, uh, is where the, uh, rationalist ideology emerged. And so Rocco, this individual, um, published a post suggesting that if we create superintelligence, then it may decide to torture maybe forever anybody who didn't participate in helping to bring it into existence. So if you are one of the individuals who, who knows that superintelligence could be created, but then decide not to facilitate that in some way, you may be vulnerable to being tortured <laughs> forever by this superintelligence. And so this was just like, I don't know, it's a really wild, bizarre idea that, as you mentioned, it, it got a whole lot of attention. And I, I think a lot of rationalists didn't necessarily buy into it. Although many others, I think, came to believe that it actually is a really, really dangerous idea. Because part of the, 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 the catch with Roko's Basilisk is if you are unaware that superintelligence could be created, then you won't be tortured. But if you know about this, if, if you know about Roko's Basilisk, for example, then you are suddenly subject to <laughs> possible punishment in the future. So maybe this is an idea that the, the rationalists uh, reasoned, an idea that we should try to suppress. It's just, it's, it's too dangerous. And so Eliezer Yudkowsky, for example, he banned all talk of Roku's Basilisk on Less Wrong, which sort of backfired. There was sort of a, a Streisand effect here. It actually made the idea more prominent because people were like, well, what, what is this idea that's been banned? <laughs> and so I'm not so sure that a whole lot of people take it all that seriously these days, but I do think it's, it, it gives one a, a sense of the, sort of strange, bizarre ideas that people on the Less Wrong website have been batting around for a while. This community, I think, would be an occasion to sort of just chuckle at and dismiss if it weren't for the fact that the test rule ideologies are enormously influential. Because a lot of these ideas, they're just not really to be taken seriously. I mean, even the arguments for for how in a superintelligence 
that is misaligned with human values. So that means it's dangerous. Uh, how exactly it could destroy humanity. Those proposals themselves are just like so strange. I mean, Yudkowsky talks about, well, maybe it's going to synthesize some artificial uh, bacterium or pathogen of some sort that spreads around the globe, infects our brains, and then makes us vulnerable to being manipulated when we hear a certain tone. So that's one way that a superintelligence could take over. Maybe also to create this like completely new kind of life form, which he calls diamondoid bacteria that are able to self-replicate in the atmosphere. And as a result of that, to ultimately blot out the sun, thereby destroying all food chains, global agriculture, which will result in human extinction. So th these, these are just so implausible, <laughs> such implausible ideas that they, one might want to dismiss them with a chuckle, if not for the fact that these people are massively influential. And Yudkowsky has been publishing articles in Time magazine, giving, he was invited to deliver a talk at TED, uh, TED conference. And he's been meeting with U.S. government officials. You know, he, he was just on uh, Dan Crenshaw's uh, podcast. So it is a, it's a wild situation that these kind of crazy ideas are gaining an audience and they're being platformed. And these individuals are acquiring megaphones to, to promote their particular view of the dangers of AI, their views about what the future ought to look like, and so on. So yeah, this is, this is why I'm worried. It's that combination of power influence along with the sort of nuttiness of the, the worldview that makes me particularly worried. I mean, one thing that this kind of paranoic desire for control also reminds me of on the flip side is the ways in which this test real as a political project seems quite reminiscent of earlier expressions of desire for imperial dominance, the kind of expansionary logic of state and capital, but broadcast or projected onto the universe. Is there any sense in which any of the players in this field or, or some of the critiques actually grapple with this ideology as being expressive of a particular form of class rule, a particular form of technocratic rule? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it is very elitist. There are echoes of the colonial kind of mindset that I think are pervasive with throughout the, the test grill community. I mentioned before that the, the bundle has genealogical roots in 20th century eugenics. I mean, without a doubt, transhumanism is a version of eugenics. It's a so-called liberal version, which I think is, is actually a very misleading uh, description of it. But transhumanism was developed in the 20th century by leading eugenicists. Julian Huxley, uh, J.B.S. Haldane, J.D. Bernal, there are a bunch of others, but maybe Julian Huxley is the most notable example. He's the one who really popularized the word transhumanism in the second half of the 20th century. And so, yeah, I, I, I think you're totally right. That sort of technocratic rule that ties into the elitism that I, I mentioned before. And you see this elitism right now with respect to open AI, right? Open AI is a misnomer. 
the original plan for this company was to create open source systems, right? Now it's, it's, it's reversed course and nothing is open source and they don't release any information about what the training data is and so on and so on. So, and the reason is that, okay, superintelligence or the creation of, of artificial general intelligence, which many believe will immediately lead to superintelligence. This is just, this is such an important momentous invention that there's only a handful of people in the world who are responsible enough to oversee its development. Those are the elites in Silicon Valley, Sam Altman, people in London at uh, DeepMind. They're the ones who are, are responsible uh, enough to develop this technology. Decisions about how it should be made, what it, what it's, what value should be loaded into the superintelligence and so on. These are too significant for the demos, for the people <laughs> to be involved in. So there is a kind of technocratic aspect to it. And right now you've got companies like OpenAI who are out there claiming that the very technologies that they're developing pose unprecedented existential risks to humanity and that they're the only ones who can properly mitigate these dangers. That just results in a, a feedback loop <laughs> where power is further concentrated in the hands of these individuals. And what is the consequence of that? Well, it just further entrenches the technocracy. <laughs> you know, the, these people are in charge and they're making the d decisions that w w unilaterally without any input from uh, the public. And those decisions are shaping the world in which we live and the world in which our, our grandchildren live. I mean, if, if they had a democratic approach, then maybe what they do is stop working, tr stop trying to create artificial general intelligence in the first place. Because if you look at survey after survey that's been conducted over the past 12 months, they reveal that the public is not interested in godlike AI. <laughs> You know, the public is not interested in trying to create superintelligence or artificial general intelligence. So, yeah, you're totally right. It's very te technocratic. And yeah, I would just emphasize that there are other, you know, deeply problematic, deeply problematic tendencies that have a history, colonialism, eugenics, and so on, that are, that have shaped the Tescrural worldview and the, the Tescrural practice in all sorts of very, profound and worrisome ways. Emil, I want to bring up an example of something that, again, I stress to the listener is a real thing that has happened. WorldCoin is another of Sam Altman's projects, and it, it's I feel it's emblematic of something. So this is his project to create a cryptocurrency that is linked to scans of people's eyeballs, and he's been traveling around the world with orbs, getting people to look into the orb, scan their eyeballs so that they can get this cryptocurrency. Again, this is a real thing. And I actually didn't understand why he was doing this until today I discovered the reason why he's scanning random people's eyeballs with an orb is so that he, he was so worried that he was going to automate everyone's jobs out of existence that there would have to be universal basic income, which is fine. No, I don't think there's any risk of him automating everyone's jobs out of existence just yet. But he, he thought there was, so he started thinking about universal basic income, and then, of course, we can't have people taking two doll checks instead of one, and so we need to scan everyone's eyeballs. 
And on a certain level, I can relate to the train of thought because he's not the only person I'm guilty of this. Sometimes you think about the big problems in life and you start to come up with really stupid solutions, and yet he has enacted his. Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually not that familiar with WorldCoin. It is one of the things that's on my to-do list <laughs> to to research and, and study. I really only know the basics and I've, I've read probably just the same articles as, as everybody else that suggest that WorldCoin is like really problematic <laughs> in all sorts of ways. I mean, collecting biometric data from people around the world, I, I think particularly in poor regions, if I remember correctly, which is a bit worrisome that maybe they're vulnerable people who might get exploited in some way. After all, I mean, crypto itself, that also had a, a huge impact in the global South. There are lots of people who were attracted by the the grand promises of crypto and ended up just getting completely screwed over. So it seems like WorldCoin is just consistent with this pattern. So it seems really worrisome. Mm. And it does... <laughs> It does seem like I'm just a little suspicious when, uh, yeah, there's any sort of measuring around the skull area from these people. Yeah, it, it definitely there's, yeah, I mean, bio, biometry, just the, the measuring of, of biological systems. Yeah, obviously there, there's, there's maybe some reverberations with past, in particular, the, the sort of measurement of humans, anthropometric sort of projects, measuring skulls, phrenology, and so on. So yeah, there's definitely just shadows of some <laughs> dark episodes in history, in recent human history, that um, seem to be cast over WorldCoin and this project to just gather this this really intimate details about human beings all around the world. For what reason? Well, it's just not really all that clear yet. <laughs> I mean, you've made reference to the godlike powers mm-hmm. that some attribute to AI or emergent technologies. And it seems like the doctrines you're discussing have a kind of religious dimension or at least have some kind of cultic dimension, perhaps. I'm wondering if you can talk about how, whether or not this constitutes an early 21st century cult of some kind. And what do you think is the, although it's couched in terms of rationalism and so on, there seems to be certain irrational or non-rational elements that animate people's attraction to and, and subscription to these doctrines. I wonder if you can talk about what is it that attracts people to these ideas and, and is it a cult? Does it have the potential to become a, a major world religion? Yeah, excellent. I mean, maybe the first thing to say is that transhumanism, which again is the, the backbone of the Tesquiel bundle, that was not only developed by eugenicists, leading eugenicists in the 20th century, but it was created to explicitly to be a secular replacement for traditional religion. So in the 19th century, especially among the, the educated classes, Christianity declined significantly. So there was like Darwin had his theory in 1859. There were developments in philosophy and biblical studies and so on, all of these sort of teamed up to seriously chip away at the foundations of Christianity. 
And so there's a reason that in the 19th century, second half in particular, you've got Karl Marx, who's denigrating religion as the opium of the masses. You've got Frederick Nietzsche saying God is dead and we have killed him. And as a result, there was this huge crisis that a lot of people sort of don't today don't realize just how enormous this crisis was. It was a crisis of meaning and purpose and a crisis that concerned humanity, humanity's fundamental place in the universe. Without religion, that provided these, these answers. Well, what is the, the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? You know, where do we fit into the biological world? And so all of that was lost in the, the 19th century. And consequently, there's just this massive void. And this is when you get a bunch of secular, atheistic, agnostic authors who are basically proposing new religious systems that are not, are supposedly not based on, not founded on revelation or faith. They're supposed to be scientific. So this is exactly what Julian Huxley uh, had in mind when he developed this notion of transhumanism. It's supposed to check all of the same boxes. It provides a sense of meaning in life. But what's the meaning? Well, ultimately to contribute to humanity transcending itself, becoming this new post-human species, establishing uto uh, uh, a, a utopian world, not through supernatural agency, but through scientific activities and our own technological ingenuity. And so from the, the start, transhumanism was basically a religion for atheists. <laughs> and yeah, and so these days, like... You know, Yuval Noah Harari wrote this book called Homo Deus. I mean, one way to understand that idea is that, okay, if God doesn't exist, well, why not just become God? <laughs> or if we can't become God, then why not just create God? Well, that would be a superintelligence, which is also also frequently referred to as godlike AI. And the Tesquiel worldview even has its own version of resurrection, right? Because if you don't live long enough to benefit, to have your brain digitized, to benefit from life extension technologies that enable you to live indefinitely into the future, then you just have your body cryogenized. And at some point in the future, when the technologies become available, they use this technology to revive you. So the, the parallels between the Tesquerel worldview and community and movement and traditional religion, I think are just really, really significant. And so I, I think that's part of what attracts people to the Tesquerel view. I would say for myself, as someone who was raised very religious and then lost my faith in my early 20s, that was part of the attraction for sure. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a real bummer to realize that because you are no longer able to believe in Christianity, you're not going to live forever. Well, that, that really sucks. <laughs> but then you have these, these transhumanists who are saying, actually, we can create these technologies that would enable us to live forever, not in some other world, not in the afterlife, but in this life, in this world. And yeah, so you even see this with many of the uh, accelerationists. I mentioned them earlier, the people who are really keen to create AGI as soon as possible. One of the explicit reasons that they are so pro-AGI in the near future is that they believe that if we get AGI within their lifetimes, they get to live forever. Right. So, so maybe if they, maybe if AGI is a hundred years out, then perhaps they can be cryogenized and resurrected, but also signing up for the, the cryogenics, cryonics companies like Alcor is really expensive. 
So maybe that's not, maybe resurrection isn't really an option. So what you want is to get AGI within your lifetime. If that happens, you live forever. And so there's a, if you talk to these people, there's a a kind of desperation that arises from this AGI being sort of right. You you can see it just peeking over the horizon. It's tantalizing. (laughs) What if we're the last generation that has to die? And the next generation, the slightly younger generation, they get to live forever. Well, that's that's just too terrible for them to... It doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound fair, right? That's <laughs> terrible. So, yeah, so I, I think this, this is partly what... I, I think the fact that test realism is a kind of religion for atheists, for people who don't believe in God or the afterlife, that is a big reason that people end up embracing it and becoming enamored with it. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking of in terms of the, I guess, material aspects of this question, some have begun to speak of a form of society that's developing called techno-feudalism. Mm-hmm. And there's associated doctrines to do with that have sometimes been termed or classified as belonging to the dark enlightenment and so on and so forth, coming from Silicon Valley articulating a particular vision of the future, but one that's, I guess, more immediate. And for some, it's, it poses particular concerns. And there's even a sense in which I think some have argued recently that rather than capitalism being overthrown and replaced with socialism, it's not necessarily return, but we're seeing the development of something called techno-feudalism. I'm wondering if you can um, talk a little bit about what you see, if any, the relationship uh, being between these doctrines that you're examining and I guess techno-feudalism. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Yeah. Excellent question. So one thing that comes to mind is that I believe the techno-feudalist kind of worldview emerged at least in part or was developed by some individuals on the Less Wrong website. I know that Less Wrong produced the neo-reaction view, sort of political position. And that is explicitly anti-democratic. There's this, a lot of these individuals claim that that the progress that individuals like Steven Pinker have discussed, we've, we've made moral progress over the, at least since the, the 1950s. Violence has declined throughout human history. Actually, a lot of these claims, I believe, are super problematic, but for, for reasons that differ from those the neo-reactionary people would point yeah. to. The neo-reactionary people would also reject this kind of narrative of progress and say that democracy has been really bad. Peter Thiel is, is, has been influential within this movement. And he argued that the 19th Amendment, which granted women's suffrage, that that was when U.S. democracy really began to decline. <laughs> that, was the, that was the turning point. And so... Yeah, and the new rapture people are basically arguing that we should go back to monarchy, that the Middle Ages, life was much better back then than it is now. And so I don't know, you, you combine that with, with technocracy and the power that is bestowed upon the technocratic leaders uh, by virtue of the technologies that they're creating, and you get a kind of techno-feudalistic uh, system. So I don't know, it's... I, my sense is that it's a fringe view, but it's entirely possible that that becomes more influential moving forward. And that would just be another reason, I think, to be really 
worried about the general tesseral movement because it's the the doomers are dangerous on the one hand the accelerationists are super dangerous the neo reactionary people are anti democracy all about returning to having literally having a monarch who rules society and so it's it's just from one end to the other it's just a very toxic community full of all sorts of like dangerous toxic ideas at least in my opinion there's a lot of talk about and around utopianism mm-hmm. in this domain and others. And I'm wondering, in this, I guess, context, it, it has largely negative connotations. I'm wondering if you think that the notion of utopianism is always problematic or is, there, is it, in fact, politically redeemable? Can it be extracted from these contexts in ways that actually promise a, a better future in, in other respects? I think that utopianism, it's, it's a, it's a concept. It's an idea or an ideal even that one should approach with like a a great deal of thoughtfulness, right? So there are plenty of utopian movements in the past that ended up becoming violent. And the violence was a direct result of the kind of utopian, the, this notion of near infinite value or infinite value associated with the creation of utopia. So, but I'm not sure that there are some, another thing I would say, sorry, let me just back up. So another thing I would say is that most versions of utopia are inherently exclusionary, right? It's, it's part of the nature of most utopias that some people are going to be excluded, right? For Christians, it's the non-believers, for Marxists, it's the capitalists, which one could argue that maybe that's not such a bad thing. But the, the point is that there's always, always somebody who is left out, who's kicked to the side. And so whenever one sees people talking about utopia, one of the first questions that they should ask is like, who is left out of this utopia? Who is the utopia for exactly? When, when Tesquerelists talk about their techno-utopian world, like who do they imagine being let in? Well, if you read what, some of the things that they've written, then you'll see that technotopia is really for post-humanity. And they even have a term for human beings who decide not to radically, modif- radically re-engineer themselves. And that term is a legacy humans. So maybe there will be some legacy humans who will stick around, you keep them in a pen, or maybe post-humans will, will sort of treat them like the, the way that we treat pets today. But ultimately, yeah, utopia is just not for, not for us unless we radically transform ourselves. Even Ray Kurzweil in his 2005 book, Singularity is Near, he has this kind of fictional discussion between him and Ned Ludd, who, whose name gives us the word Luddite. And so Ned Ludd in, in the dialogue is anti-technology and he asks Kurzweil at one point, well, what happens if I decide not to? radically enhance myself. And Kurzweil says, well, then you're just not going to be around very long to influence the debate. <laughs> so so there, this notion of tech utopia, I think, is pretty exclusionary. It's you, another striking thing. If you look at the literature, you'll find almost zero references. I mean, virtually zero references to claims about what the future ought to look like from the perspectives 
of non-Western thought traditions, of mm. perspectives of Afrofuturism or feminism or queerness or disability, and so on and so on. There, there's a, and, and I feel like the problem with that is just underlined by the fact that if you look at the trends in religious demographics, you'll see that the future is in a very real sense religious. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. It'll have, I don't know, if I remember correctly, 1.6 billion people by 2050. 2050, not that far away. Christianity is also increasing. Atheism is decreasing globally. <laughs> it's increasing here in the West, but it's, it's decreasing everywhere else. One, one Alan Cooperman, who's, who runs the uh, Pew Research uh, Center, the, the religion uh, department, he said you could think about it as the secularizing West and the rapidly growing rest. <laughs> and so, but the reason I mentioned that is that if you're going to seriously talk about the future of humanity, how can you just ignore this? That the Islam and Christianity are the future. So if, if you genuinely, OpenAI talks about benefiting all of humanity. Well, if you really care about all of humanity, you need to take seriously the fact that, that more than a billion and a half people in, by 2050 alone will be Muslims. <laughs> and Again, and then just to, to zoom out a bit, there are non-Western thought traditions, indigenous perspectives, and so on and so on that are just completely ignored. So they're, it, and by ignoring them, the vision of utopia that the Tesquilas end up with is just super Western. It's built on capitalist values of maximizing economic productivity, Baconian values of subjugating, controlling, uh, and, and exploiting nature. And so on and so on. It's, it, it ultimately is just a deeply impoverished view. And so one thing I would say, so to, to bring this full circle, like maybe there are, are notions of utopia that aren't quite so problematic, but I think the utopian vision that is influential among the Tesquil, within the Tesquil movement is super problematic and it's very impoverished. It's extremely narrow. It was designed almost entirely by very privileged white men at elite universities like Oxford University and in Silicon Valley. And consequently, it's, it, 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 there's just no room in their vision of us becoming digital beings and living in vast computer simulations spread throughout the universe. There's no room for indigenous traditions or, or peoples or Muslims or so on and so on. Mm. So th this, is, this is another reason why I've argued that on the one hand, the pursuit of utopia could be dangerous because if you have this kind of means justify the ends view. And if the ends are literal utopia full of astronomical amounts of value, then what exactly is off the table for realizing that end? Well, maybe if you have to kill a few million people or commit a little bit of genocide, that's going to be worth it because the stakes are so huge. So the pursuit is really dangerous, but also the realization, the successful realization of their utopian vision, I think also would be catastrophic for most of humanity by virtue of how impoverished this vision is. So I, ho I hope that makes sense. Hmm. Uh, just finally, Emil, a year is not a long time in the grand scheme of things, but it's probably fair to say that the past year has not been kind to some of the big Tesquiel proponents. Elon Musk has gotten a lot of public exposure for the way he thinks, and I suspect the number of people who would trust him to get them across town, let alone to expand the lot of human consciousness, <laughs> has decreased significantly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has gone from being one of the richest people on the planet to he stands accused of perpetrating one of the 
largest financial frauds in human history. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sam Altman, this hasn't happened yet. I, I was listening actually to a podcast you did where you mentioned Sam Bankman fried uh, running a Ponzi scheme. And I, I checked mm-hmm. the date and it was long before any uh, accusations had come out. So this will be for people listening to this in the future, what that was for me. Sam Altman has yet to come to <laughs> terms with anything, but I noticed that his company is about to be valued at $90 billion, to which I say, come on. <laughs> I don't yeah. think so. So that's all about to come crashing down. Uh, the point is some of the glosses come off some of these big names. Do you think that this test creel philosophy might have some rockier times ahead than it has had in so far? Yeah. Excellent point. I'm not so sure because despite all of the PR disasters of the last year, <laughs> I mean, there were so many articles written about Bankman Freed that in the first paragraph mentioned he's an effective altruist and long-termist. <laughs> so I, I, despite these, these PR disasters, the fact is that the test movement is still profoundly influential and it still has billion, tens of billions of dollars just in research funds, just, just for grad students and, and philosophers and, and so on to pursue their research projects focused on long-termism and EA and, and transhumanism and so on. So it's still just enormously influential. It still has its tentacles spread throughout major governing entities like the UN. I, I, I know people at the UN and they affirm that long-termism continues to be very influential. There are people who have successfully made it to into the the higher echelons of the U.S. government, and so on. So it's it's possible for long termism and test realism in general to have a terrible reputation among the public, and for it still to be massively influential in Silicon Valley government governments around the world, and so on, and therefore to still be shaping the world that we live in. So th- that's sort of my, my my worry is that even if the public turns on test realism, that it will continue to wield extraordinary power over what our world looks like, what our lives are like, and what our lives will be like years, decades, maybe beyond that into the future. So, yeah, I don't know. It's... It's, it's very worrisome that, in another sense, it's just impressive that they've managed to gain so much power. They've been extraordinarily effective, one might say, at positioning themselves in places of power and clout and, and so on. So I don't know. I, I'm not optimistic that the influence of test realism will wane in the future, even if there continue to be these PR disasters as a result of Elon Musk or Bankman Freed. That's that still isn't out of the news. He's going to trial soon. So he'll continue to bring down the the good name of effective altruism for a while. And then who knows with Sam Altman, maybe like you say, there could be all sorts of extraordinarily embarrassing <laughs> revelations in the future. But I'm not sure how much that's going to affect the the power of the test real movement. Well, listeners, don't say I didn't try to end on a cheerier note, but yeah. that's, not, that's not what people are coming to this show for. Uh, Emil, thanks so much for coming on. If people want to find more of your work, you have a website at xriskology.com. That's the letter X. 
somewhat tarnished by uh, others, but uh, xrithology.com. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to chat with you. Well, Andy, that is our show. We will be back next week. See you later. See you then. Bye-bye. The distant future The year 2000 The distant future The year 2000 The distant future The distant future It is the distant future The year 2000 We are robots The world is quite different ever since the robotic uprising of the late 90s There is no more unhappiness Affirmative We no longer say yes Instead, we say affirmative. Yes, affer- uh, affirmative. Unless we know the other robot really well. There is no more unethical treatment of the elephants. Well, there's no more elephants, so... Uh, but still, it's good. There's only one kind of dance, the robot. Oh, and the robot. Oh, and the robot. Two kinds of dances. But there are no more humans. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. Poisonous gases And we poison their asses The humans are dead The humans are dead The humans are dead They look like they're dead It had to be done I'll just confirm that they're dead So that we could have fun Affirmative, I poked one, it was dead Their system of oppression What did it lead to? Global robo-depression They had so much aggression that we just had to kill them and to shut their systems down. Robo Captain, do you not realize that by destroying the human race because of their destructive tendencies, we too have become like. Well, it's ironic. Mm. Silence, destroy him. After time, we grew strong, developed cognitive power, made us work for too long for unreasonable Shut their motherfucking systems down. Can't we just talk to the humans? A little understanding could make things better. Can't we talk to the humans that we're together now? No, because they are dead. I said the humans are dead. I'm glad they are dead. The humans are dead. I noticed they're dead. We use poisonous gases. With traces of lead. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out.
and online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.